All right. Back to Schofield, back to the subject of dispensationalism. And hopefully we'll make some pretty good progress here. I think we will. That's the plan. If anyone remembers where we were, what we are doing is we're trying to, before we get to dispensationalism, we kind of went back, did a, little, did a little bit of church history. We talked about the history of the English Bibles. And the first major, I guess we would call it study Bible, was the Geneva, right? And then, and that was 1560. Then we jumped to 19. 17, really. Now, of course, the first edition is 1909. The second is 1917. That's the one we're looking at. And that's the Schofield Study Bible. We, yeah, I know. Right. Exactly. So they publish a Bible with obviously the Reformation type theology in mind. Right. And then 1909, 1917. Now we get a study Bible with, again, another a theological system. And we talked about all the dangers of theological systems. But what I decided to do is not only give that history, one of the things I wanted to do is go through really just as if you first purchased a Schofield Bible and just to show you how these theological systems, how they are basically, they make it to the average person sitting in the pew, right? Whether you know the name of a system or not, you're being given a system and then that system sadly becomes the, the your hermeneutic, whether you realize it or not. So we read the introduction, and then we started looking at this section known as a pan- panoramic view of the Bible, all right? And then he started uh, kind of breaking some things down, right? The first thing he wanted us to understand is the Bible is how many books? One book, one book, right? And then he says seven great marks attest this unity, and we looked at those seven marks, then the second thing he wanted us to know was the Bible is a book of, a book of books. 60 books, 66 books make up the one book. And we looked at all of the different things he had to say about that. Then he wanted us to know that the books of the Bible fall into groups. Does everybody remember those groups? How many groups were there? Five groups. What were the groups? Preparation, manifestation, propagation, explanation, consummation, all right? Then uh, he, he then broke it down this way. He broke it down, if you remember these, four well-defined groups, redemption, Genesis to Deuteronomy, right? Organization, Joshua to Esther, poetry, Job to Lamentations, and then sermons, Isaiah to Malachi, right? Remember that? Then we see, I think, did we stop? Pretty much right there. We got we got halfway through four. Okay. Um, then the fourth point was the Bible tells the human story. And that's where we'll pick up. And again, the, the reason we're doing this, I, I just have to state this over and over and over and over and over and over again, is I'm trying to show you, even before we get to dispensationalism, we're still a million miles away from that in, certain, in some ways. I know not literally, but in certain ways, we're still a long ways to getting to the dispensationalism. But it's showing you that he's already doing what? Laying down a theological system, a theological system. Some of these things we, we can say, okay, I think that's observational. There's no problem. But some of them are clearly 
interpretation and which then becomes the means in which you interpret everything he says moving forward. And we have to see that. We do not want the system to be the basis of our hermeneutic or to be the guiding principle. What should happen is we go to the text, the text, the text, the text, and then all of the systems, all of the interpretations, all the ideas are wonderful to be there, but we always do what with all of them? They're just simply a kind of as a hypothesis, right? We test them. We can use them. They can serve as maybe a curb that we can kind of, we are driving on the road and we kind of go off a little ways and it may, it may get us back on the road. It, they're, they're there for, we can use them for all kinds of purposes. And I got no problem. I want everyone to know the systems, be, be aware of the systems and understand them. You just can't let them become the lens through which you see the scripture, right? They have to stand below the scriptures. And everyone says that's the case, but we, we, know it's, we know that's not the way it works, all right? So, and this fourth point he makes in his panoramic view of the Bible, he says this. I'm going to start back at the beginning of it. The Bible tells which story? The human story. He says, beginning logically with the creation of the earth and of man, the story of... Uh, okay, let me read this again. Beginning logically... With the creation of the earth and of man, the story of the race sprung from the first human pair and continues through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. With the 12th chapter begins the history of Abraham and of the nation which Abraham was the ancestor. It is that nation Israel with with which the Bible narrative is thereafter chiefly concerned from the 11th chapter of Genesis to the second chapter of Acts of the Apostles. You may want to keep that in mind and really think that through, all right? Now, I'm going to read that again in just a second, but before I do so, let me remind you, here I, I, I challenge this concept, right? He says it's the, the Bible tells the human story, and I approached it in a different way, right? I believe the Bible tells the story of God and his dealings with humans, right? I think we, we have to start with God because the Bible starts with God. It starts with God, right? So the story, and I think any, any of his dealings with people, it's more about God than it is about us. And I don't think anyone ever really likes that, right? Because if you think about the way the church takes it, we always take it and make it a story about us, right? Christianity Everybody is, is like, God is there for us. God is there. God is the source of our comfort. God is the source of our purpose. It's always about what God can do for me. Now, there, now, listen, the gospel is the story of what God does for us. But whatever God does for us, he, I mean, I hate to say this, and I know people won't like this, he kind of does it for himself. Right? Because if we say that we are created for what? To glorify God. And I know this is a controversial concept. I know this is a very controversial concept. And this, see, this is what would get me in trouble with the non-reformed world. And I know nobody likes this. Is God glorified when he judges people? Yes. Is God glorified when he saves people? Is God glorified when people go to hell? And is God glorified when people go to heaven? Is God glorified when he raises up a nation? 
Is God glorified when he brings down a nation? All right, now, if God is glorified in all of it, then everything he does, it's a story of God's dealings with man. For which purpose? For his glory. And I know that, like, if you're... Now, for us sitting in the pew, we kind of take that and say, well, you know, amen, praise God, that's just the way it is. But you have to hear yourself because people who are not sitting in the pew, people outside of the church, they think that that's one of the most horrific, horrible, demented, twisted stories ever created. And you can't blame them. You can't blame them for thinking that way because it does seem unfair. But I think that that's the only way to read the Bible. I think you have, the Bible's a story of God. And then when, and when we learn about God, we see then God's interactions and dealings with his creation that he created ultimately for his glory. And that sounds egotistical. I, I know, I know it, it, it bothers people, but look, either we put it this way. The, the one thing we always have to realize is truth doesn't care about how we feel about it. So if we believe it to be true, it's irregardless how we feel about it, right? In other words, I can't throw it out simply because I don't like the way it makes me feel. But I think there's a lot of, of truth to that. So I would challenge that right there. He makes it too man-centric, and I think it should be more God-centric. However, he does point out a very important point, and I want to make sure everyone writes this down. I'm going to read it again, all right? Beginning logically with the creation of the earth and of man, the story of the race sprung from the first human pair continues through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, this is the part I want everyone to write down. With the 12th chapter, right? With the 12th chapter begins the, the history of Abraham and of the nation of which Abraham was the ancestor. It is that nation Israel with which, with which the Bible narrative is thereafter chiefly concerned. And he says Israel is the major focus from where? The 11th chapter of Genesis. From, oh, it says from the 11th chapter. Everybody see that? Chiefly concerned from the 11th chapter of Genesis to the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. I want everyone to see that. Now, that is a serious... Look, you don't even understand the implications of that, right? Because some people would may argue that's not the case. That it's not about the nation of Israel. It's about what? The church, or they 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 may not use the word. They'll just say God's people. God's people. Because that's code for what? Yeah, well, they're spiritualizing it in a sense that they don't want to focus necessarily on the nationalistic aspect of it. They just want to focus on, oh, it's a remnant or it's it's God's people because you can much more do what with that? Connected to the church. So that I cannot stress, like, you could argue in many ways that that, that concept really becomes his driving, at least as far as certain aspects of dispensationalism is concerned, you could argue that statement becomes almost the driving principle of a certain hermeneutic. I, I, and the only difference here is, and say this is where I don't care which team I fall into, I kind of agree with this. I believe that that statement can be proven uh, observationally. I believe if I start reading my Bible and I just read it, 
There's no question. There's a nation. Right? I don't see it as just, oh, this is a story of God's people. It is a nation, right? It is a nation where God makes a covenant with that nation. He makes a promise with that nation. He guides that nation. He gives that nation everything. He tells that nation not to be like what? The nations around them, right? He, 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 he judges those other nations. He uses those other nations to judge them. There's kings, there's land, there's all of these things that would clearly show you to be a nation. So I think that that statement, I cannot express to you the significance of that statement. If you, if you haven't written anything down from this, that that's the part you should write down right there, okay? And then what does he say? The Gentiles are mentioned but only in connection with Israel. I think that's another observational fact. And those chapters from Genesis 11 to Acts, well, he says Acts chapter 2, right? Yes, Acts chapter 2. I think that that is a fair assessment that anytime Gentiles are mentioned, it's in with the connection to Israel. And he goes, but it is made increasingly clear that Israel so fills the scene only because and trusted with the accomplishment of, of great worldwide purposes. And it says Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. Someone look up Deuteronomy 7.7 7 and tell me what you find there. Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. Tell me what we find here. Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 7.6. Uh, I'm going to start with 7-6 here. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Who is that a reference to? That's clearly Israel. And it says, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any, other, than any people. For, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, I don't know about some worldwide purpose mentioned there, but I do know this. Those verses demonstrate that God did what? He chose that nation, he loved that nation, and he had done things for that nation. Correct? All right, so I don't know, I don't know if, um, he, uh, Schofield said, but it is made increasingly clear that Israel so fills the scene only because entrusted with the accomplishment of great worldwide purposes. I will say it becomes increasingly clear that Israel fills the scene because God's sovereign choice and his divine love. That's what I would say. You can, you can agree or disagree with there. All right, now look, now look what they're going to give here. Listen carefully. Here we go. The next paragraph or next yeah, section. The appointed mission of Israel was, and he's going to outline what the appointed mission of Israel was. All right, what's the first part of their mission? To be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. And what verse does he tell us to look at? Deuteronomy 6.4. And what do you find when you look at Deuteronomy 6.4? Is this the famous verse that says the Lord thy God is one? Is it? 
Yeah, the Lord that God is one. So he says that they were to be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. It says, look at Isaiah 43.10. Do we have the same thing in Isaiah 43.10? I'm going to look at Isaiah 43.10 because we, I have to choose which of some of these references will, we'll try to at least look at all of them. We may not spend time doing lots of reading of it, but 43.10. All right, we'll go back to 43.9 just for some context. Isaiah 43.9, everyone there. 43.9, let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witness that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. So there's, he's saying that one of the chief purposes of Israel was to do what? To be a witness of the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry, right? What is the second purpose that they supposedly had? To illustrate to the nations the greater blessedness of serving the one true God. And they tell us to look at Deuteronomy 33, 26 through 29, Deuteronomy 33, 26 through 29. Let's go ahead and look at that. I'm just going to have to slow down and just commit ourselves to looking at these. He said 33, he said 26 through 29. All right. Deuteronomy uh, 33, 26 through 29. There is none like unto the God of uh, Jeshurun who rideth upon the heaven and thy help and the excellency of the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also the heavens shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency, uh, uh, and thine enemies shall be found liars uh, unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. All right? Now, let's look at this again. So what's the first purpose of Israel, supposedly? Their first mission? To be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. Number two, to illustrate to the nations the greater blessedness of serving the one true God. And if we see that in Deuteronomy 33, 26 through 29, they also give us 1 Chronicles 17, 20 through 21, and then Psalm 102, 15. We won't look at all of those, right? Now, when we, when we look at those two, well, we'll continue. But when, if this was the mission of Israel, we see those two things, right? What can we dogmatically declare about those two things? They didn't do a good job. How did they not accomplish the first one? They became idolaters. And what did they do in the second one? They did not obey. Therefore, they didn't, in many cases, did not receive the blessing of God. Because, and, and just stay with me here because I'm going to flip his entire premise here because I think he, he misses, I think he misses the point. But we'll, we'll see. All right. What's the third mission? 
to receive and preserve the divine revelation. And where do they get, tell us to go for for this one? Romans 3, 1 through 2. Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Everybody see that? Everybody see that? All right. Now the third one, what can we say about the third one? I think they, I think they accomplished this to some level. Not always perfectly, right? Because in Jeremiah we have a record of a king doing what? Cutting up and throwing into the fire the word of God, right? And how many times did they lose it? Remember in the Old Testament, some king would discover it? Well, how did they discover it? That meant they had lost it. They had set it aside. But so they didn't do it perfectly. Even that they fell to some level. But it is ultimately preserved, right? Now we could say, did they accomplish it or did God accomplish it in spite of them? We could have a long conversation there. I'm just saying that there's some clear examples where <laughs> you, don't, you don't know what in the world they were doing, okay? All right, so, and then number four. To produce the Messiah, earth Savior, and Lord. Romans 9, 4. Right, everybody look at Romans 9, 4. Romans 9, 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Now, I don't know if that one specifically helps us with what they want us to see there, but I will agree that it is from Israel that comes whom? Christ, the Messiah. So I think we can agree there. So, what is the, uh, how many points here? Uh, four? Yeah, fourfold mission. What is the fourfold mission of Israel? Number one, to be a witness of the unity of God and in, in basically in the midst of universal idolatry. And that's not the exact way it's worded, but somewhere close. I should have these memorized because I don't know how many different Bible colleges where the, it came obviously from Schofield. I didn't know it was coming from Schofield at the time sitting in class, but I had to memorize these things for tests, okay? So I don't know how many times I've had this question on test, but at the time it didn't register to me it was coming from Schofield, but clearly it's where it was coming from, all right? So the fourfold mission is number one, to be a witness of the unity of God in the midst of idolatry. Number two, to illustrate the blessedness of obeying God, serving God, following God. Number three, to preserve Divine revelation. Number four, to produce the Messiah. Now, some of these, they all, look, they, if you think about it, they came almost very close to not being able to produce the Messiah because almost the entire line was wiped out, right? And not only was the line, one line wiped out, but a part of the line was cursed, right? The curse of Jeconiah, right? I mean, like we had, so they, they, they almost fell in that completely. I mean, God had to basically preserve that. God had to step in there. They were in very, they, in many cases, they lost the word or you had a king trying to destroy the word, right? So in some cases, they almost messed. What did they continue to do with the temple? They would bring in 
idolatry even into the temple. So they didn't always do a very good job even there. And then in many cases, what would happen? They had almost forgotten the law. And they were no longer keeping the Sabbath. They were no longer following any of the rules. And then someone would discover the word, right? And everybody would be like, oh, read it to us. Like, we never heard this before. So they, they almost didn't even accomplish that. We know they didn't do number one. They turned to idolatry over and over. And we know number two, that's why they're constantly in trouble because they don't obey. So I'm going to make a different argument. I think Israel's mission was to serve as a living breathing historical example is when you take a nation, you take a people and tell them you must obey God's law or else the end result will be or else, okay? Because you're going to fail. I think they serve as a living, breathing example of what happens when you live under the law of God, which is going to be condemnation. I think that's what they serve as. And what we tip, well, an example of our inability to keep the law. Typically it's preached that Israel is an example to teach us what we should do and what we shouldn't do as if we can do it. That's how it's preached in church after church after church. Hey, we're going to be reading about Israel and what should we learn? Don't be like Israel. The implication is, you can. But 2,000 years of church history, is the church any better than Israel? I think, to me, that's the most fascinating part to stand back look and look at it from a historical perspective. You, like if someone wanted, like this is another good example of making charts. If someone makes a good chart, go through the history of Israel and just write down the basic, a basic summary, a basic outline of their life. Failure, failure, failure. Idolatry, spiritual adultery, murder. I mean, you just go on and on and on. Disobedience. You can just write down probably the top 10 failures of Israel, right? Now you take those top 10 failures of Israel. Do you not believe that you would see the exact same failures inside the church? Oh, absolutely. There, There is literally no difference. There is no difference. To me, that is the most fascinating thing. And that, to me, proves my whole point that you can't understand this history, I, I believe, without a correct understanding of law and gospel. Because it demonstrates that us under the law is going to be a history of what? Failure, 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 failure. So what is the only hope for Israel? Not what they can do, what God will do for them. And God's going to do it for them because of his sovereign election, and his divine love. What's our only hope? God's sovereign election and his divine love. Because Israel fails, 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 and then God has to step in and say, you know what? Y'all can't do it. I'm going to do it. So I'm going to, and then he says, what is he going to do? I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Not like the ones I made with your fathers, which you did what? You failed. And then what does he say he's going to do in the new one? He's going to do everything. I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then what he says is going to happen. It's going to be obedience and it's going to be blessing. All your enemies are going to be destroyed. The land's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Nobody's ever going to bother you again. You're, nobody's going to need to be taught about God because everyone's going to 
No, God, it's going to be. Well, guess what? That has never happened. It's never even happened in the church. So clearly that I'm going to argue the purpose of Israel was to be a living, breathing, historical example of what happens when you live under the law and its failure. I know everyone disagrees with me, but look at that fourfold mission. They failed. No, no, no. It was, it was always brought up. Look here, this is basically, in fact, this is typically how it was done. Look at Israel's fourfold. We have the same fourfold mission and this is how it would work. We are to be a witness. You and I are called to be a witness. Number two, our job is to preserve and promote the, guess what? The uh, revelation of God. Uh, number three, let's see here if I can find all of their, uh, all of their uh, responsibilities. Um, oh, see, number, so number two, okay, oh wait, our job, so number one, our job is to be a witness. Number two, our job is to show people the blessedness of serving God, how, how blessed it is to serve God. Number three, we are to promote, preserve uh, the revelation of God. And number four, we are to uh, call people and point people to the Messiah. So basically, they just take those fourfold purposes and say the same fourfold purposes are ours, just in a slight, they just word them slightly differently. And then basically is, are you doing these four things? And of course, the implication is we can and we should and we do because we have the ability. Instead of realizing we're going to fall short just like Israel did. But the church always makes this mistake. Right then, what does it say there at the end? Right underneath all of that, after it gives those fourfold things, well, right, right under those fourfold things, there's a sentence: the prophets foretell a glorious future for Israel under the reign of Christ. That's a very key sentence, because what does this demonstrate? Immediately now, now if we're not to dispensationalism yet, we're getting now the key there. This is the key hermeneutic, right? According to, to Stofield, what is the key hermeneutic? There's two, there are t- two key elements to Schofield's hermeneutic. Number one, from Genesis 11 to Acts 2, it's all about a nation. Number two, the prophets foretell a glorious future for the nation of Israel under the reign of Christ. Meaning, somehow, Christ is going to rule and reign where? Here. That's the two key elements to his hermeneutic. Now, see, here's the thing. When the average Christian buys a Bible and reads an introduction like that, well, first of all, we acknowledge many Christians don't bother to read the introduction, but you see now why an introduction is so important? Because what did he just establish? Moving forward, any of his notes are following this hermeneutic. He just gave you his hermeneutic. What's the hermeneutic? Well, number one, Israel is the focus from Genesis 11 to Acts chapter 2. And number two, that the Bible foretells a glorious future for the nation of Israel in which Christ is going to rule and reign over. That, that begins to give you an idea. Now, once, once you establish that as your hermeneutic, what happens? 
If you're reading the Old Testament and there's a promise to Israel, how are you going to read that promise? If you follow his hermeneutic to the nation that will be literally fulfilled, right? Therefore, you're going to look for a future event in which Israel's going to do what? Be back in the land. They're going to get all those promises and it's going to be fulfilled in a literal way. If you don't follow that hermeneutic, how may you read all of those passages in the Old Testament? You start turning them to the church and you start seeing the fulfillment as allegorical, not literal. That, you, do you understand the profound impact that has on a good portion of the Old Testament? That has a profound, that, that's why I, I always tell everyone should have a Matthew Henry commentary because if you have a Matthew Henry commentary, if you're in Ezekiel, if you're in Isaiah, what is it every single time? The church, 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 the church. Or someone else will be saying, Israel millennial reign, Israel millennial reign, Israel millennial reign, Israel millennial reign. And guess what determines if you see the church or if you see the nation of Israel in the millennial reign? Your hermeneutic determines it. Now, my argument is I should not allow my system to become my hermeneutic, I should go to each section and go, all right, guys, today we're in this chapter. What should we do? Is that, is, do we think that's the literal nation or do we think it's the church? Now, what most churches would do, they're just going to tell you what it is based off their system. And I hate that. I think we should throw out the system and go, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? And, and so we look for little clues, right? Like in Jeremiah 31. Well, it says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That is very specific language, right? That's very, very specific. I, I don't see how you make that the church. Not only that, what, what, if that's the church, that, why, is he, why would Jeremiah be telling people going into Babylonian captivity about this wonderful promise if the promise is not for them? All right, that's a second problem. Three, the promise also includes land. Well, if Israel isn't Israel and land isn't land, then I don't even know how to interpret anything at that point. So see, I would look at each specific section and then say textually which way we should go and not worry about what my team says, right? The team may say, no, 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 you've got to interpret that. I don't care what the, I don't care what Matthew Henry has to say. I don't care what MacArthur has to say. Ultimately, I don't care what Schofield has to say. I've got no problem taking our hypotheses, looking at all of these other voices and testing it and challenging it, but we're, we, don't, we should not be bound by it. Because if we're bound by it, I mean, it should be like, hey, guys, here, here's the commentary. Stay at home, read your Bible and read this commentary, and then you're good to go. You don't need church. Church should be the place where we come and do what? We wrestle out, we challenge it, we break it down, we take it apart. That's what we should do. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. But I cannot, sh- so what are the t- I, I, look, if all we accomplish in this hour is this, what are the two key elements to Schofield's hermeneutic that he has presented us? Yeah, Genesis 11 to Acts 2 is about the nation of Israel. In other words, national-centric understanding of the Old, well, basically all the Old Testament, right? 
Number two, that it, it, within that, may, that most of the Old Testament are prophetic passages that speak of a glorious future for the nation of Israel under a literal reign of Christ. And now that's going to impact almost how you read everything. And whether you, look, you've got, you could, you, you, whether you know it or not, if you talk to any Christian friends, they will either be following this hermeneutic and may not even have any clue where it derives from, or they will reject this hermeneutic and have accepted a different hermeneutic. And may, they may not even know where that one originated from. But I can almost guarantee you, they, do, they, they think they're doing Bible study when all they're doing is reading a system into the Bible, claiming they're, they're studying the Bible. But that's not Bible study. Bible study is the rejection of a system so that you see what? The text. You don't see your system. And trying to get people to do that, well, yeah, good luck. All right, good luck. All right, now, we now to the next section, all right? The biblical story of Israel, past, present, and future, falls into seven distinct periods. We want to write this one down. This is another one that showed up in a lot of tests, all right? The history of Israel, right? And he breaks it down into past, present, and future, does he not? And he says that this past, present, and future is broken down into what? Seven distinct periods. Seven distinct periods. Now, guess what? If you you don't focus on the national-centric idea of most of the Old Testament, you're probably not going to break Israel's history down into seven parts, are you? But if you see that basically the entire Old Testament is about Israel, then you may outline it this way. What are these seven distinct, as he refers to them, periods. Number one, from the call of Abraham to the Exodus. That goes from Genesis 12 to uh, Exodus 20. Genesis 12 to Exodus 20, the call of Abraham to the Exodus. You may want to write this down. You may even want to, I mean, you you definitely want to write this down. Okay. Everybody got that? Number two, from the Exodus to the death of Joshua, Exodus 21 to Joshua 24. Everybody got that one? For those listening online who may not be looking at a Schofield Bible, the biblical story of Israel, past, present, and future, falls into seven distinct periods. The first one, it goes from the call of Abraham, Genesis 12, to Exodus chapter 20. Number two, from the Exodus to the death of Joshua, Exodus 21, to Joshua 24. Number three, from the death of Joshua to the establishment of the Hebrew monarchy under Saul. That don't give a scripture here, but you can get, that gets us pretty far. From the death of Joshua to the establishment of the Hebrew, Hebrew monarchy under Saul. Number four, Four, right? The period of the kings from Saul to the captivities. Number five, the period of the captivities. That's pretty simple. The period of the captivities. 
Number six, the restored commonwealth from the end of the Babylonian captivity of Judah to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That's, that's really good, right? Because it actually mentions A.D. 70. Okay, I, anything that actually mentions A.D. 70, I'm a fan of, right? Number seven, the present dispersion. Now, what is he referencing here, the present dispersion? Now, when, when are these notes made? 1917. Is Israel back in the land? Is Israel a nation? No. So the present dispersion. Now, we could say they're back in the land. We could say there's a nation of Israel, but we could say it's still nowhere close to, it's, it's, not, it's definitely not anything future. Yeah, constant struggle. They don't have half the land. They don't even control most of the holy sites, right? Okay. Now, all right, then here we go. The gospel, the gospel, the gospels record, if I can read correctly, the appearance and human history within the Hebrew nation of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, and tell the wonderful story of his manifestation to Israel, his rejection by that people, and his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The Acts of the Apostles record the descent of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the new thing in human history, the church. Stop right there. Does everyone see that? Does everyone see that phrase? This is another key this is another key hermeneutical principle of Schofield, all right? Okay, so stop right here. What are the two key hermeneutical principles of Schofield up to this point? Number one, that the entire Old Testament is nation-centric. It goes from Genesis 11 to Acts 2, and it's about what? Israel. Number two, that the prophets foretell a glorious Israel for Israel, which Christ was reigned. And here's number three. Here's the third key hermeneutical principle of Schofield. The church was a new thing that did not begin till when? When does he describe the beginnings of it? Acts. The book of Acts records a new thing called the church. Why is that a key hermeneutical principle? The church did not exist. Until Acts. Can't be for the church. Many would say, no, 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 no. The church was always there. There was always the church. The believing remnant, that was the church. And they always want to try to downplay the national centric and emphasize it's just the people of God. So you may have had a nation, but that believing remnant within the nation, that's the church. I'm going to argue, oh, I, 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 well, I think I, I think I tend to agree with Schofield here, but, but the point is, whether we agree or disagree is irrelevant. You need to see this, you understand that changes your entire hermeneutic. So I want you to see how easy it is once this becomes the way you see, it's the way you will then See, is that a deep concept, right? Once this becomes the way you see, it's then the way you will see. And it's almost impossible to change someone's mind of that, right? And what's so frustrating is once people adapt a system, 
and they want to start arguing with you, the minute you try to push back, they just get become angry and you, you, you can't help, you can't, I don't know what you do. You can beg, you can plead, but you cannot convince them going, you're arguing a system. Stop arguing with me the system. Let's get to the text. They don't want the text. They want the system. So I don't care if it's Schofield. I can pick this up if it's the gospel according to Jesus. Now, for those listening online, I've got John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. I'm putting it on top of my Bible. Whether people like it or not, they will read this. MacArthur where? Into the Bible. And when you disagree with this, what are you going after? Their entire, what they believe to be, they believe it is the Bible. But you can't convince them. No, 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 no. You're arguing with me a system. Let's set aside the system and let's get to the text. So then you will tell someone, well, let's look up this. Let's look up this. Hey, hey, look up all of it. Like, just like we did with Israel, right? Well, we're not going to argue. Let's just look up all 3,000 something references to the word Israel and then decide what? What do we see? And other than maybe one or two verses, what did we see? There's this nation centric, right? I mean, I, I will stand, anyone who ever argues with me uh, on email about this or anywhere, I'm like, unless you've looked up every single reference, don't argue with me because we literally did. So there's no way to ever convince me otherwise. Just the same thing with baptism. We, 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 I mean, we listened in church history to some of the church fathers doing what? offering weird ideas to verses, but when we just looked up every verse that we could find about baptism, what did we come to a conclusion of? It's in water. Belief seems to be a predicate or be, become before and it seems to be in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We do have some weird things going on in Acts that's a little confusing, okay, because it says in the name of Jesus, but okay. Uh, we, we, but we, we have a hard time this elaborate ceremony where you take the baby at eight days old, you put water, and then the baby somehow becomes a member of the church or the baby is somehow saved. We had a hard time seeing that from Scripture other than if I take a system and put it on it. And, but when you start arguing, then people will immediately accuse you of being dumb or not. And, and, it's, and what's so weird is they will always tell you that you're not the one reading the Bible. This happened just the other day. Um, I was reviewing a podcast from the editor of The Sword of the Lord. They're clearly Trinitarian. They're clearly Trinitarians. They're, you know, independent fundamental Baptists. But on his podcast, when he defined the Trinity, it was straight modalism. It was just 1,000% modalism and Sabalianism. So I critiqued it as being modalism and Sabalianism. And so then someone on YouTube immediately attacks me. What you need to do is stop following Catholic heretics and you need to read your Bible. Immediately telling me that I'm not reading my Bible. And it's like, well, first of all, you don't even know me, so don't tell me I need to read my Bible. But then secondly, it's just like, or you could read your Bible and your modalistic approach doesn't make any sense. Because over and over in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to the Father as being distinct and separate from the Father sent the Son. Uh, Hey, Father, give me the glory that I had with you, like he, he refers to, who is he praying to, right? Like, I mean, all this thing. But they're like, no, it's just one person who shows up in three different ways. Well, then something is weird because he's praying to himself. He, he's going to do the will of himself. Like, 
No, they're distinct persons, right? So, and so I just try to get people to go look at the text. But once again, once the system is ingrained, you can't, it's like, there's no point in arguing with someone. Once they have bought into the system, you think you're arguing scripture, they're arguing system. And when, when, if one's arguing system and one's arguing scripture, the people arguing the system think they're actually arguing scripture. So therefore, you're doing what? You're not talking the same language, even though both claim they are. There's no point in having a conversation. You, you have a better chance. You, it would be, a, I, I hate to say this, it would probably be much more beneficial for you just to get on a plane, go to Vegas, and get drunk. Because really, there's, you, you're wasting your time. You're just wasting your time. There's no point in engaging it. You should just, you shouldn't even try. You should just give up. Because that, but the system becomes the dominant force. All right, we're going to have to stop. I don't want to stop, but, well, we, we, uh, well, well, we got to the three major points of his hermeneutic, did we not? We got to the three major points of his hermeneutic. And what are those three points? Number one, nation-centric view of the entire Old Testament, Genesis 11 to Acts 2, is all about Israel. Number two, the prophets prophesy a future glorious a glorious future of Israel under the literal reign of Christ. Number three, the church is a new thing that's revealed in Acts. All right, we'll stop right there. We'll pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you for being in a place where we can do this. Our numbers may be few. There may not be many who want what we do here. But Lord, I pray that you just allow us to be here as long as we can to provide a place where we can question, challenge, and try to be a place that places the system underneath the scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...